On the Riabu podcast today, we're going to be arguing about whether or not Australian companies and Simon Littlewood companies everywhere, for that matter, should be exempt from fridge benefits tax. So this is the sort of tax you pay. Hmm? You said fridge benefits. I did not say fridge benefits. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Well, I'm all for fridge benefits. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, I think we're talking about fringe benefits tax. Yes. uh, Which, as we all know, is a tax on... The things that you give your employees, such as free meals, health care, child care, all of those sorts of things, um, that are normally in most Western countries and certainly in Australia subject to personal Fringe tax. benefits tax. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I'll be rewinding this recording just to check what I actually <laughs> said. But seriously, the Australian government says, uh, or at least the ombudsman, um, who is a quasi-government figure arguing with the government, says that if you were to relieve businesses of fringe benefits tax, especially the small benefits, uh, the small the small businesses. <laughs> you see, you've got me going now. You would end up benefiting SMEs in two ways. One, SMEs would not have to pay this tax on items that large companies would fund normally, right? So let's say you've got a creche, as they call them in mm. Australia, right? A, a childcare center. Large companies usually have them internally. Staff canteen. Yeah, staff canteen. Large companies have them. Small companies don't. Small companies need to pay the FBT. But the other benefit would be that the large companies spending money on things like restaurant meals, gyms and childcare centers would be spending that money ostensibly with SMEs. So SMEs would benefit twice. And Kate Carnell, the um, ombudsman for Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise, points out that this would be a relatively small cost to the government, less than 1% of government revenue and uh, or translating into about $4 billion a year. Sounds like a no-brainer, but this is why Simon and I are arguing about it. Because my point, of course, is that anything that SMEs would benefit SMEs rather should be done. Simon is not so sure. Well, I mean, uh, the fringe benefits tax apparently accounted for less than 1% of government revenue in 2019. I just said that. Yes. Um, It's a substantial amount of money. It's $4 billion. Oh, it's only $4 billion. No more than, Kate Carnell said. Yeah, well, uh, the numbers on the face of it seem to make sense. So um, if, I, if, I, if it's not taxed, then businesses can provide employees with opportunities to go out and spend money in restaurants, playing golf, doing other things. Why is that important? Well, one of the hardest hit sectors, the hardest hit sector possibly, um, is the hospitality sector. It's, it's, it's transportation and hospitality, are probably the two sectors that have been hit toughest. Um, we know that lots of restaurants and hotels have been really struggling. This looks like quite a smart way to stimulate spending in those establishments. And the economic argument is that by keeping those establishments going, you're preventing businesses going under, you're preventing unemployment and so on and so forth. So it has a significant rolling benefit for the economy as a whole. In fact, Kate Carnell um, has um, also quoted a report by Ernst & Young, which was uh, conducted on behalf of the Tourism Accommodation Australia uh, Association. Um, it's a 25-page report. You can find it for yourself on the um, asbfeo.gov.au website. Um, but I suppose the question then is, you know, can governments actually afford it? And I suppose this was the point that you were taking earlier. Before I hit the record button, I'll have you know, that Simon was arguing with me black and blue that the government shouldn't be doing it, and you're all sanguine now. What's happened to well, you? Well, because I think we seem to be in a world where where governments are giving us back money that is essentially our money. A government doesn't have any money except the money that it collects from you and I. There is no all money that it borrows on our behalf so that our children will have to pay it back. You know, <laughs> one thing for sure is that government ministers aren't sitting around you 
know, in the cabinet office, having a whip round, taking their wallets out and providing this subsidy. So at the end of the day, all of this money has to be made up. So if they're going to be taking a $4 billion tax earn and then basically say we're not going to earn that in tax anymore, they don't have $4 billion, you know, sitting in a bank account. They've got to make that up from other sources of revenue. Either they borrow more money on your and my, my behalf or they find another way of increasing tax. Or they don't spend the $4 billion. Well, except that the government's, government expenditure never goes down, does it? I mean, at the end of the day, and we know for a fact it's not going down now, because if you measure government expenditure as a percentage of GDP, you've got GDP collapsing. I don't know what the collapse is in Australia, but I'm guessing it's probably 5%, 10%. But you've got essentially the same amount of money that governments have to spend, plus all the additional subsidies that they've now committed to in Australia and elsewhere. The only way that can work is if post-COVID, Overall rates of taxation, both corporate and personal, go up. Otherwise, borrowing has to grow, has to go up to an unprecedented level, which in effect has the same result because servicing the borrowing has to come out of government revenue. And the more you spend on debt service, the less you have to spend on services and the more you have to tax. So at the end of the day, this is basically kicking the can down the road in terms of economic impact, you know. And, and it, isn't that worth it? Well, when, when at the same time, like in Australia, you know, there are 180 almost thousand members of Tourism Accommodation Australia uh, who, who employ uh, almost a million people. Isn't that worth it? It's a sort of philosophical question because, of course, I, it, I would sound very churlish where I just say, oh, don't spend this money because, OK, yes, jobs can undoubtedly be, be preserved. Uh, businesses can undoubtedly be preserved. But the general principle of it is the government's responsibility to spend our money to keep businesses going. This is not actually the way that uh, a free capitalist society works. This is the way that a totalitarian society works. <laughs> and I promised I wouldn't talk about politics. Um, but more and more, we're seeing state capture of businesses in effect. And the difficulty that I see, and we've talked about this before, is having kicked the can down the road by providing these subsidies, what, what happens when you stop giving the subsidies? Because we know, we know from the OECD that it's highly unlikely that overall levels of economic activity will return before October 2022, I think is their estimate. So between now and then and possibly beyond that, is the government going to continue to provide subsidies to keep these businesses going? Yeah, uh, We're talking about massive amounts of money, a massive hole in the public finances, all of which has to be funded. So... Um, it's easy if you're a politician to kick the can down the road because you don't pay the price. Um, but it's not clear to me that it's actually to the long-term benefit of taxpayers to keep, much as I care about these businesses, and you and I both have SMEs, uh, it's not clear to me that constantly kicking the can down the road and taking on more and more and more borrowing is really the answer. You know? Yes. All right. The honourable member will now resume his seat. Uh, <laughs> whereas, of course, I, I guess there there is... Um, you know, when, when we talk about small and medium enterprises, usually on this podcast, it is the context in the context of making sure that your customers pay you on time and influencing your customer in such a way that they simply run out of wiggle room to make excuses. In the case of, in the, uh, you know, in this case, cafes, for example, um, hotels and so on, there isn't actually usually that sort of credit term. You pay over the counter once you've bought your cup of coffee and slice of cake. And I suppose that's a, a critical difference between companies that issue invoices and those that are in the retail business, including cafes. Yes. I mean, there are there are aspects of hospitality which are um, B2B rather than B2C. For example, most people that come and stay in a hotel or come and eat in a restaurant pay straight away. 
but block bookings through associations or societies or travel companies or um, associations uh, sometimes negotiate credit terms so that they provide you with a big block booking with 50 guests or 100 dinners or whatever it is and they then pay you based on a single invoice yes uh, for which they might want credit terms yeah but that i agree that that is the exception rather than the rule yeah indeed and so how does what you always talk about and preach in relation to getting your customers to pay you on time uh, apply in this particular case well um if it's if it's a cash business then um it doesn't <laughs> but it does of course affect the way that you pay your suppliers because Cash businesses might earn cash from their customers, i.e. restaurants, you know, bars. Um, and when I say cash, I mean they might credit cards where they get paid pretty much straight away. They don't offer credit terms. They've got to pay their suppliers. They've got to pay the brewery. They've got to pay the food suppliers. You know, they've got to pay, got to pay keep, keep the keeping the lights on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rates, utilities, all those sorts of things. So um, how do they manage to do that? You know, cash flow is, is a serious issue. Um, so this measure, if it's correct, will generate additional revenue which will ensure that they have the cash to keep the lights on, which essentially is what we're talking about. It's the difference between keeping the lights on, keeping people in work, albeit at a lower level of activity than before, versus closing down. When you close down, you have two things. You know, Not only does the benefit of the business cease, i.e. there's no tax being paid, there's no income being paid, very often the people that you're employing depend then on public finances in, in the sense of um, Social Security or whatever the Australian equivalent is. So you've got, you've got further on. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a vexed issue. It's a vexed issue because we're moving to a situation now where, where every time you elect a politician, you're going to have to choose between a politician that keeps the benefits flowing, which is to say keeps subsidising you, or one that doesn't. And the question you've got to ask is, any politician going to dare to stick his head above the parapet and say, well, look, we've got to stop paying everyone to do nothing? Um, and uh, and we're going to have to get back to an economy which is genuinely competitive. I, I, I worry about that very much all over the world, in the United States, in Europe, in Australia. Yes. Well, Dr. John Hewson, when he ran for office in Australia in the 1993 election, ran on an honest platform such as the one you're describing. Didn't uh, win him didn't the election. Get elected, no, didn't, didn't get elected. Um, but it, well, I mean, I'm, and I fully admit that I'm a hypocrite. I mean, businesses in Singapore have been getting cash from the government. I'm against it in principle. But I'm not giving the cash back. <laughs> this is this is actually a very fun argument for me to have with you because you're doing all the arguing, and I just need to need to prompt you on these is points. Is this the five minute argument, or just the uh, yeah, the five minute the, argument, or the, the half the hour? Full half hour. Yeah. Well, at, at this rate, it's ten minutes and thirty eight seconds. Um, what about the turning this around and saying what about the the suppliers, like the brewery, for example? Now we always take the line that if you buy a product or service, you ought to pay them on time. Um, and, I, and I'm reluctantly and very carefully suggest this, that perhaps it is the suppliers to these cafes, to these establishments, these uh, hospitality establishments, that maybe they, maybe there needs to be a negotiation going on as to when those invoices are paid. Would that be a better way of going about it um, than dipping into the taxpayer's purse for some more? Well, I'm fully in favour of negotiation. What I'm, what, what I'm not, I, we need a world where people stick to what they've agreed. And if for some, if because of force majeure, you know, COVID or whatever it is, um, I'm not going to be in a position to meet my liabilities, then I need, rather than quietly not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I need to have that honest conversation with my suppliers. And we've talked about this at length, but, you know, a supplier who wants to stay in business will recognize that he has an interest in ensuring that his customers don't go bust. Uh, and provided you have an open discussion very often a deal can be struck, particularly if the supplier has deeper pockets than you, and very often you're buying stuff from a company that's bigger than you. 
if you don't, if you pretend that you're going to pay him but you don't, at the end of the day you put him in a tricky spot and you put yourself in a tricky spot because you risk future supply. So I'm, I'm in favour of honesty. I'm in favour of sticking to what you agree. And if there's a genuine problem that prevents you, discuss it and see whether you can't reach a solution because very often you can. Hmm. So in the case of the, the pub, which uh, is at risk of going bust, let's say Kate Carnell's efforts do not come to fruition and the Australian doesn't, government does not you know, forego that $4 billion in annual fringe benefits tax um, revenue. Um, should you, as a pub owner, then call Lion Nathan, call Foster's, call the brewers and say, I'd like to have an honest conversation with you, please. And instead of paying you for the kegs that you usually deliver um, and paying for them straight away or whatever the terms are, I'd, I'd like you to give me a, an extra 30 or 60 days. Is that the sort of way Well, to you're going to be buying less, less stuff than you were before because the level of consumption has gone down very significantly. So you may have previous debt. So this is likely to be a negotiation of when you pay the previous debt because the way that it generally works if you have credit terms is you're paying previous debt out of future cash flow. That's the way that it works. Except oh, okay, you, you're going way too fast. Except well, you haven't you, got you, so you buy so you get your supplies from a supplier who say gives you thirty or sixty days credit. You then sell them to a customer who pays you in cash, mm -hmm. and you accumulate enough cash, and then you pay your supplier, right? But you're not getting the cash. You've got the supplies. Yes. But the cash is coming in at one tenth of the rate that it was coming in a year ago or seven months ago. Uh, so so that's what you've got to renegotiate. You've got to say, we need to come up with an agreement on how I pay you and indeed what we do for future deliveries. Yeah. Um, do you think the brewers would be willing to do that? Well, I, you know, it, it, if I put my other hat on and I'm advising a, a company that's selling to other people, I say take a very, take a very straightforward view. Customers who clearly are not going to survive, you know, and that's not that hard to establish, i.e. they're in a business themselves where their goodwill, their activities essentially disappeared, you need to cut your losses. But for most of your customers who have some kind of a future, particularly if there's government subsidies available, you need to cut a deal that keeps them going because you're going to need customers when all this ends. It's not in your interest to destroy your market. So, yes, strike a deal. And if you're a big company and you've got deep pockets, think about <clears throat> digging into those pockets a little bit to make sure that your overall supply chain, north and south, remains in existence. Mm. Don't trash it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that then, north and south, as, as, you, as you so eloquently put it, it means that if you are a large company, your customers have come to you and said, hey, can you give me, cut me a little bit of slack, 60 days instead of 30 days, let's say. Of course, you as the big company then turn around and pay your suppliers later. Well, right? if you're a big company, then you have more leverage <clears throat> over your suppliers, of course. And your supply, and you know, and if you're if you're selling a beer, for example, to then you've got to buy a lot of supplies uh, to brew the beer, to pay your employees, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So um, yes, this needs to be passed on. As long as it's done openly, um, you can. You're essentially running far less water through the pipe than you were before. The question is, does somebody further upstream? keep it all while everybody else downstream essentially uh, is thirsty and yes. eventually dies? Um, <laughs> or do you recognize that you know, there's less water, but control the flow so that everybody survives till better times come back? I mean, that's the sensible way to do it. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of dysfunctional, well, a certain amount of dysfunctional behavior where people have taken advantage of the situation to line their pockets. That short-term behavior really isn't in anyone's interest. Right. So run more beer through the, I mean, run less, you're running less beer through the pipe. Uh, goodness, we really would die if, was, uh, if that was uh, turned off. Uh, so the bottom line is talk to people. 
Talk to your drink customers. Less. Drink less. Yes. That, that <laughs> that's the bottom line. <laughs> no, people already are. Drink less. That's the problem. Yeah. So, so, but, but um, it's it's interesting that you say that actually what what's needed is not necessarily a militant view of thirty day payment terms, but a a conversation with people sticking to one what of the they biggest obstacles here is that if you that you, is you get sort of frightened. It's like you know rabbit in the headlights kind of thing. You know, I, have you ever have you ever been on a rabbit hunt? Um, Absolutely not. How could you dare suggest that? Okay, well, perhaps we'll talk about that later. But at the end of the day, you shine a light and they can't move. So here am I, I'm running an SME and I see all these problems and I'm keeping them to myself until I've reached the edge of the precipice and then I fall over because it's too late. Open up a discussion with your suppliers. Open up a discussion with your customers if you have B2C customers. At the end of the day, everyone knows there's a problem. Everyone sees that conditions have changed. But they're going to be worried if they don't hear and all of a sudden there's a crisis because they're going to think that you're not managing things very well and they're going to form the view that you're probably not going to survive. So demonstrate that you're going to survive by getting ahead of the game and saying, here's what I think is going to happen. Here's how my activity is going to be reduced. Here's what I want to discuss with you so that I can keep going and we can resume business as normal when this situation improves. Yes, usually people skirt around these sort of conversations. Well, they're very, you know, particularly if you're used to a certain level of success and you're pr proud of your business, you're facing a very different situation. It may feel humiliating to go to a supplier and say, we've been growing our business with you every year for the last seven years. In the next three months, it's going to halve, possibly more, and that's going to put us into a tricky situation. But I do value our relationship and I do want it to continue. So let's talk about how we can work together to make that happen. Yeah, um, people are open to that. You know, what they're not open to particularly is nasty surprises, because if you're dealing with a big company, <laughs> it, it puts it puts them into a tr in a tricky spot because they're all trying to work out what's going to happen. They're trying to do their sums to balance a new situation, and they have expectations, and you don't meet the expectations, and that puts them into a crisis and it creates internal conflicts within your supplier. Lay out the truth, show that you're on top of it, get a concession that will enable you to keep going. And that signal is the signal that our five minutes of arguing is up. Actually, it's way overdue and you yeah. haven't paid for it. Oh, well, look, uh, do you give me credit terms? <laughs> Can I pay you in three months? <laughs> That's not how it works in this, <laughs> in, this, in this argument, I'm afraid. Thank you, Simon Littlewood. You'll find links to these stories in the description of this podcast. Thanks for listening.